You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode is sponsored by Kama Sutra. This family-owned and operated company has been the gold standard of sex play products since 1969, which is a great number. Kama Sutra has been making love better with their products that range from toys to personal lubricants and massage oils. You can get a 20% off discount right now on all orders at kamasutra.com, K-A-M-A-S-U-T-R-A.com. When you use our discount code S&S, S-A-N-D-S, it looks like SANS in all caps. Enjoy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a sexologist and marriage and family therapist. And I'm Simone, a law student, and uh, talking, I like talking about sex. So this week, we are joined by none other than Supreme Bay. You might know her as at Thought Scholar on Twitter. She's a pro-ho womanist and sex worker, creative, and community advocate in Chicago. She coined the phrase and spelling of pro-ho womanist, that's H-E-A-U-X, as part definition in 2016, and all of her work centers black and brown erotic laborers. Supreme Bay is a survivor of intimate partner violence, childhood abuse, and poverty. Her goal is to not only be a voice in the community, but to elevate the voices of other marginalized sex workers through her creative work and publishing. Fuck yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, what is proho womanism? Okay, so I was just tweeting about this <laughs> because Wait, I if saw, you don't follow her on Twitter, you must. Yes. I saw someone using the phrase another sex worker who another sex worker, okay. And we have some minor beef or whatever, but not really. <laughs> anyway, she's using the phrase and I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was just talking about this. I said I um there's a site Black Woman Sunday. I coined the term I coined the phrase proho womanist. I never know whether to say phrase or term, but I coined it in like 2015. And then I wrote a working definition of proho womanism in 2016. And it's kind of in revisions for a while because um, obviously, you know, you grow over years and you want to make shit more inclusive, you know, like um, I wanted it to be more um, center black trans women more. Um, there was mm -hmm. some language I wanted to remove and correct and all of that. So it's in revisions right now, but it's been used in its original form on Medium in several people's different presentations, dissertations. People have cited it all over. So I was like, that's what propelled me to write the book. Anyway, it is basically a womanism or a black and brown feminism that is focused, that centers um, sex workers and centers like not sex positivity necessarily, but a healthy sexual attitude or a healthy sexuality. And I felt like it was different. It was important to differentiate between pro-ho womanism and sex positivity. Um, womanism is a word that I love because it definitely denotes black and brown feminists or feminists of color. And that's who my work focuses on. 
Um, so that's basically it. It's basically a womanist is basically a black or brown feminist or a feminist of color. And adding Froho in front of that, for me, made it clear that this was something that was centering marginalized people, in particular black and brown sex workers, because often mm-hmm. I would see that womanists and black feminists who were, you know, either middle class or respectable or academics, they would, if if they weren't interested in our work to write about it and write books, you know, for, you know, their own work, then basically they just were dismissing women like me. There have been people who on Twitter who I've never really interacted with, but when I would, you know, on those little positive threads where they say, you know, drop a picture or drop your links or whatever, I've been blocked once or twice by um, black women who really just felt like me being a sex worker, I wasn't really like fitting their demographic and I wasn't Mm. what they wanted to promote. Why do you think more mainstream um, womanists exclude sex workers or don't want to be pro or aren't pro-ho? I think just for the same reason that general, our general culture does. Just, you know, a lot of repression, sexual repression, a lot of stigma um, around the ideas, just like with the queer community where we heavily intersect, you know, um, a lot of stigma about STDs, a lot of stigma about um, sex in general. And then when you add in being black or brown, you know, the fetishization and racialized notion of that. And, you know, this idea that if we can just be respectable, then we'll be respected. And this idea of doing sex work or erotic labor makes you not respectable. Right. So is the audience for pro-ho womanism the people that it speaks to, about? Um, I don't want to necessarily say speaks for, um, but is the intended audience, like, who? Um, I would say that I am my main intended audience. <laughs> when I, I say that, that. <laughs> so you're, so you're that, naming just, something that is important to you and hoping that yeah. like, it speaks to others. Basically, I just like this is important to me. This is my life. A lot of people aren't writing about it, but more of us are starting to. And so, you know, I don't like to be the only person in the room who's doing stuff. I don't. There's room. I feel like there's room for everybody. And there just needs to be people, you know, willing to publish us. And I am one of those people who now is willing to publish, you know, people who don't maybe don't have as as much experience. Like one of the reasons I even just decided to go ahead and do this when I have been wanting to for a long time is because I looked up um, even certain feminist publishers and like they wanted you to, you know, have three three to five chapters ready or do this and that. And I mean, that makes sense. But me being who I am, an impatient Aries, (laughs) I just decided to go ahead and do my own thing in hopes that I will be able to publish more women who look like me or who don't look like me, black and brown women, maybe get global, you know, and publish, um, you know, black and brown women from East, out East, you know, that are not American. Mm -hmm. So. I don't know, like I just I buy almost every book on sex work and sexuality that I can find about black and brown women. And then even some that aren't about us, just because, you know, like like I have Carol Lee's book. It's really good. Um, Mm -hmm. She's one of the you know, one of those pivotal members of the community, the wider community. And she coined the term sex work. So naturally, you know, I have her work and I have, you know, whores and other feminists and things like that. So I, I I have but I have all these books and a lot of them. If they are by black and brown women, they are not former sex workers. 
Mm. Or they can't disclose that they were sex workers because they're in academia. Yeah, that's a, so. So most of the of the literature on specifically black and brown sex workers is written by people who have not experienced it. Right. Or written by people who are, you know, removed from the community or even people like Siobhan Brooks, who wrote Unequal Desires, but and is a former sex worker. But she's one of the few academics of color who have I who I've seen claim that. And it's it's really difficult to do that in academia. And I think sometimes even I forget that when I critique. When, when do you think you first realized that there was a need to sort of designate or signify for yourself this idea of womanism? Because obviously we, Simone and I, are two white women, and I, I would assume that we both consider each other feminists. And at the same time, um, you're naming this important intersection for women of color in the feminist space. And so I wonder when you realized, like, my voice is not in that mainstream space. Um, I think I was like 18 or 19. I didn't come up with the phrase then, but I was thinking about this then. And then I just kind of got sidetracked. I started stripping and that kind of stoked my ideas and everything like that. I did that for a few years. And then I met my son's dad. And of course, a man derailed me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Derailed from the railing. Yeah. And he like told me my dreams were stupid and a bunch of other shit. Ugh. And I had a kid with him and he didn't want to help me like by waking up early and doing all the other shit that he, you know, to help me do this stuff. And he wasn't as ambitious as me. It's not like he was doing anything else, but he just thought what I wanted to do, like I was quote unquote doing too much. So I got back into thinking about it when I was like 25 after I left him. Well, because you write so much, like you're you're extraordinarily prolific and in, in just in terms of like the sheer volume that you write. Like I feel like you have a thought and then all of a sudden there's this like beautiful piece on it that you've written on that's available like on your Patreon and sometimes you make them like freely available on Medium. Like I, I just read your um defined definer piece on like sex work and like what does it mean and terminology. Yeah. Have you always been like like the person who has an idea and thinks about it for so long and then is seemingly easily able to like write about it so clearly? Yes. <laughs> and I hate that I hate that I'm like that. That, and that's why I told people my form of writer's block is actually like I have anxiety. So when I get writer's block, I don't it's very rare that I just stop writing. It's just more just, just like I run out of ideas is what I mean. When I stop writing or stop having, you know, stuff coming out, it's because I have other stuff going on and I'm overwhelmed with ideas. Wow. I can write about anything. <laughs> I can write anything. I just. Sometimes my mind is buzzing so much from all the stuff that I'm doing and then having anxiety on top of that, that I'm in a million. I'm always working. I'm never just working on one project. I don't mm -hmm. think people realize that I'm always working on two or three projects. I cannot focus on just one thing for too long. It's kind of a weakness of mine that I have tried really hard kind of to turn into a strength. Yeah. Sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. No, I mean, I think you're pretty successful. Like I mentioned the piece that I that I just read, the um, Define Definers, which we'll totally link to in the show notes. Um, and to kind of bring it back to the question about, you know, the need for 
recognize the need for intersectionality and like departing from feminism, specifically mainstream feminism, specifically white feminism. And just like, mm-hmm. um, like us too, as like white women doing this podcast called Sluts and Scholars. And I was reading your piece and you're talking about a non-exhaustive word, a non-exhaustive list of words for like sex workers and you have escorts and hustlers, prostitutes, hookers, and then there's slut and you say it's racialized white. And I was just curious if you could like speak to that a little bit. Oh yeah. I wrote a piece about, um, the racialization of these words and I wasn't, and I wasn't the first one to write about this. Ho is definitely racialized. Definitely. And I think that people try to like say that it's not for whatever reason. I don't know. I can't talk about people's motives, but it's a racialized word etym- etymologically. Etym- yes. Etymology. Etymologically. Yes. It is a <laughs> it is a racialized word. It is a shortening or slang version of whore. Mm-hmm. As far as slut is concerned, slut is also racialized, but it's also classed. Mm hmm. More, For listeners I, I was, who might not know what racialized means, like what is like that means it like connotes a specific like. Oh yeah, it's coded like "ho" is coded as black. It's it's a black slang that is like is the a descriptor slang. is like it's a yeah. black, you're referring to a black person. Yeah, like no, well, like it's it's not. It's usually you're referring to them. You know, sometimes black men will do their own their own little thing, whatever. We don't care about them. So, <laughs> it is a, it is a racialized word, just like thought. Mm-hmm. That is a racialized term. It is. It is. It denotes, you know, blackness or a black woman in particular. And it was coined by someone here in Chicago. It's a Chicago word. Also, and um, slut is more open. Like you know, like I've heard black girls' moms calling them sluts. It's more like like when you are the dominant culture, I don't think that you part of the dominant culture. I don't think you realize what words are like racialized and what words aren't all the time. Mm-hmm. Especially I a guess word we like, could argue that like all words are racialized. Like slut. Just every, um, like our whole culture is racialized in a lot of ways. So it's like any word, I feel like um, there's, there's a context and a, a history that goes with most words. In our in our well, culture, I, well, yeah, but I think that's that we're talking about two different things. So, you know, if we're talking about the history of the English language, English being a colonial language mm-hmm. to you know the rest of us. Then that's the conversation that you're going to be having because we're going to talk about the French influence and we're going to talk about the fact that all our fancy words are like French or Italian based, mm-hmm. lat or Latin or something. You know, like then that's when we're getting into that when we're talking about slang though, and um, what we call sometimes pidgin languages or creoles Mm -hmm. and things like that. You know, black American English um, has its own rules, has its own, it's a a dialect of its own. And then, you know, and it's, and it also depends on the region where you're from, but the word Mm -hmm. slut is more classed than racialized, but it definitely is coded as white or Mm non-black. Just like, you know, just like words like cock or cuck. You know what I'm saying? These these are not typical. These numbers are not typically used by black women and black people that I know outside of sex work. Mm. Yeah. I think that was really interesting <laughs> what you were just saying about, or not even interesting, but like completely accurate that um, when you are a part of like the mainstream dominant culture, um, you don't even you realize. Do, like, and you're not, and, and you're not making an active effort to think about 
words, you, you just something, you assume it's the norm because like that has what has been forced on like everybody else. But when you're part of that dominant culture, like, yeah, you don't think about it. Right. I'm curious, like when you are working, I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure what kind of sex work you're doing now in your life. Um, I'm, and I wonder what it's like to potentially get clients or work with people who don't believe in some of the things that you work on. And how do you deal with people who aren't as like woke or informed? Do you just like choose not to deal with them or do you have to because you're, you, you know, it's a business? Do you just mean clients or other sex workers? Um, cl- I guess clients, but uh, it can, that can include other sex workers too. Okay. Well, I don't re- typically work with other sex workers. Um, I typically work by myself unless I'm stripping and I haven't stripped in a long time. So I'm not mm-hmm. getting into any clubs now. <laughs> um, I don't fit, I don't fit the aesthetic. Mm. Um, but I will say that with, as far as clients are concerned, I do what every other sex worker does. Uh, now I know some, some white sex workers and some non-black sex workers who are lighter skinned who are even light skinned black sex workers who are able to, to kind of like let their self out, you know, politically more with certain clients. Usually, you know, re- obviously it's going to be regulars. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, I don't, I have a, I have a, like a hard limit on how involved I get with regulars and, you know, politically. And I like to feel people out before I say how I feel about things in these situations, because you never know. You could, uh, for me, you know, being who I am and looking how I do, I could end up being assaulted and there's not shit that I could do about that. Yeah. And so, like, I don't have time to be having these conversations with clients who don't, you know, most of whom don't care about me on a, like on a deep level. But yeah, like um, for me, you know, I'm not going to get into all of that with a client. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to probably, you know, I, I prefer to do full service work. I'm not, I'm not doing that right now because it's dangerous. And mm. I just I don't know enough to screen and do all of that shit like I was a street worker for the most part so where I pick my clients up is from the street and when I decided mm-hmm. to move to online work Foster and Sester was like in the works this was like a couple a year or two ago and now it's just like well fuck like I shouldn't even like try because CPD is nothing to play with so um so yeah I don't know um I don't really get into that with clients like in depth there have been a couple of regulars who I've been way more real with than others. One of them was a regular that I picked up from a strip club in Green Bay and I, and he, I ended up becoming a sugar baby in that situation. So, (laughs) so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't do that. What did you, like, what did you disclose to him about your personal beliefs or, um, Um, well, he was an atheist. Treatises. (laughs) He was an atheist. I also am an atheist, an agnostic atheist. So that was something we immediately bonded over. But also, he wasn't a typical white dude. Um, you know, he had his faults, like all men do. Um, but his wife was black, so I feel like she probably straightened out a lot of stuff <laughs> <laughs> for me. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of stuff that I had to explain to him because he was like in his late 50s. So... Mm-hmm. So he wasn't like some young white dude. 
Um, so we bonded over a lot of different things. We had a lot of different, he was a reader. I'm a reader. So, you know, we would talk about books we read. He'd buy me books. He'd send me money. And we'd talk about a lot of different shit. Yeah, I feel woefully inadequate compared to how much you fucking read. (laughs) (laughs) I I just finished this. I'm about to finish this one book. I'm a chapter away from finishing it. I read it in like two and a half days. It's incredible. Um, so just one, one more question about like this, like client interaction, like a more hypothetical one, like what, like what, if it were safe to communicate something and there wasn't a, which unfortunately is like not the case, but if it were like, what would you want to communicate with a client? Um, I would want them to, to vote differently, I guess. I vote more locally than, um, you know, I don't really vote for presidents anymore. I got bullied into voting for Obama the first time I voted. I was 18. And then I voted for Obama again because why not? <laughs> and now I'm done voting yeah. for, pres- for presidents anyway. I kept voting locally when I lived in Milwaukee and I have to get an ID so I can vote locally here. I'm just lazy. You need an ID? Yeah, I'm almost positive you need an ID. And if you need, even if you don't, like, I feel like there's some paperwork that I just don't feel like the hassle. I'd rather just go to the DMV and just get an ID. Fair enough. You know that if you'd rather go to the DMV, it's a big fucking hassle. (laughs) Yeah, like, I went through so much just to get health insurance, just to get Medicaid here. And I just don't feel like dealing with Illinois on that level. Yeah, it's insane, like, the hoops you have to go through to get... Um, benefits. I was on Medi-Cal when I lived in California and I am someone who like genuinely enjoys filling out forms and like has like medical literacy and like, like that kind of experience. And like, I, I would like, if if English is not your first language, I can't even imagine how you do it. Um, like, right. Not if it's not your first language, but if it's not your primary language or you're not fluent in it. It's insane. Sorry, that was just like a total. And side if you're note. and if you're dealing with it, like you were saying, the intersectionality of being a sex worker and a woman of color. Yeah, like filling out paperwork. I don't have a problem with that, but that's like like you said, that's because English is my first language. Um, and like I would love to be able to help other people fill out forms for courthouse. I went to the courthouse with my um my fiance. I went to the courthouse with him to fill out paperwork for his custody stuff and um, with his other kid. And um, the language was so archaic and I was having trouble understanding. Yeah. I know that sounds like cocky to some people, but if I have trouble understanding something, then like the, the, the paperwork is fucked. They need to correct the language. I don't think that's cocky. Your vocabulary <laughs> sounds vast. So. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, slutty scholars, sorry for the interruption, but I want to take a moment just to offer you a discount code from our amazing sponsors. Kama Sutra has an ancient passion and philosophy based on the fourth century Indian text known as the Kama Sutra. Kama is the greatly revered Hindu god of love, while Sutra means narrative, manual, or guide. The teachings in this text include the use of oils and fragrances to enchant the senses and intensify sexual pleasure. I personally love and am inspired by the history and the inspiration for the company. They have amazing products ranging from massage creams and oils to personal lubricants, luxury bathing gels, and massage candles. 
I really love the Weekender Kit, which is an on-the-go intimacy package that can fit in your purse, your carry-on, or even your pocket. It's great for that planned spontaneity that we always talk about on the show. If you don't have a partner to use it with, take yourself on a date with Kama Sutra. Right now, use our discount code of S and S, S A N D S, like Sands, and get 20% off on all your orders at Kamasutra.com. Let us know what you think. I'm curious because you talk a lot about this and just what, what we've been talking about. Um, but the, you know, the gender binary and intersectionality and trans inclusion. And so you identify yourself as bisexual. And so I wonder what that means to you and how maybe even that word kind of fits into this, this gender binary. That is a misconception. That is not. Tell me more, please correct me. (laughs) That is not what the term bisexual means. We had to Mm. correct the baby Kalani on this. We had to learn her, (laughs) but (laughs) she thought the same thing. That's what I thought too. He identifies as pansexual and pansexual is kind of this new term or whatever. Okay, it's growing on me. It it is. I I I did not like it at first. It just didn't hit my ear right. Mm. I like words that sound pretty or sound a certain way. I don't know. I'm weird like that. So, but it's starting to grow on me. But bisexual and pansexual are almost like basically the same thing. People will say that they're not, and they'll say that bisexual goes with the binary, but. Julia Serrano said that that's not what it was. So <laughs> I'm going to listen to Julia. So what's what a better, yeah, what does she say? What's a better working definition? Okay. So she says that she is, she's writing this piece from the perspective of a bisexual identified transsexual woman. And she says that since some people paint bisexual identified folks out to be binarist in our partner preferences, she will mention for the record that she dates and is sexual with folks who are female and male, trans and cis, and non-binary and binary identified. That she doesn't speak for all bisexual or transgender people, but these are her views on this subject. And she goes on to say that she uses the word bisexual because Historically and currently, it is the term most commonly used and understood to denote people who do not limit their sexual experiences to members of a single sex or gender. Mm. Of course, bisexual is not a perfect word, but then again, neither is gay, lesbian, dyke, homosexual, heterosexual, straight, queer, asexual, or any other sexual I- sexuality-related label. I like that. Thank you. I really hadn't. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't like heard it in that way before. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. Yeah. She also gave us the term experience, the phrase experientially bisexual. So Ooh, what does that mean? She says that she uses the phrase experientially bisexual to refer to people who, regardless of label choice, do not limit to their sexual experiences to members of a single sex or gender. I might have to start using that for myself. I love her so much. Have you, how do you feel about omnisexual? Have you heard omnisexual? The first time I heard of omnisexual was in this section of Julia Serrano's book. You guys, the book is called Excluded. Go buy it. Oh, fuck yeah. Because I think I identify as omnisexual. How do you identify omnisexual? Well, omnisexual is about like diverse. It definitely is more to do 
in my understanding, and it sounds like you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong, so please do, Supreme Bay. Um, it's about, like, like lots of different things, but it's more focused on, I think, sex than, like, relationships generally. Would you say that's right. an accurate description? Yeah. A lot of time when you tell people you're bisexual, they immediately ask you about threesomes. <laughs> so. But what about Omni? For omnisexual, the first time I heard that word was in this book, and I was like, that is that is some other universe shit. It's just like <laughs> right you're there. into I just like I just like, like everything. <laughs> like right. I it's like I will I think sex is like food. Like I truly will. I was try just anything. gonna say that I was I was comparing it to your love for food, because what did you call yourself? A gour- gourmand. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I really do. And I and I generally it's not like just to try to try. Like I just genuinely like I think that omnisexual is a really sexy way to label yourself. <laughs> I like it better than pansexual. And I'm going to tell you, I feel like the only reason I didn't switch over to omnisexual is because I wanted people to know what the fuck I was talking about. That's, oh my God. That's so <laughs> my experience. Like, so people are like, what are you? I, I, I use queer because it's easier, but I also will say if there's like, if it seems like an interesting convert, someone who's down to have the convo, I'll be like, well, I really identify as an omnisexual, but blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's so interesting. I fucking love that. Yeah. We I say queer. It, make it bigger. I say queer a lot. Because queer is fast and people just get it. Yeah. And it's like, if I say queer, then there's just, you're just going to be left wondering. And like, I'll specify as bisexual. As some reason, when you say bisexual to people, they go somewhere else. And it's like got all this stigma that I'm trying to like, you know, get over and get rid of. As far as like bisexual people just being whores, as in like indiscriminate, like promiscuous and having indiscriminate sex with like anybody. Hmm. Which is still okay. But yeah, and <laughs> there like, is that, that stigma. Is, that, that is so stigmatized in yeah. this culture that like immediately people want to take it there and they want to judge you and all this other stuff. And like I could have not had sex for like two years, and then like they would still be like, "But you're bisexual, so I know you're a whore." Yeah, there is an element of like greediness people associate with bisexual, which I think would be you know all the more with Omni because yeah, it's not greedy. I'm just like not gonna. It's not that I'll, like, fuck anyone and everything indiscriminately, although maybe. It's right. more that it's, yeah. like, there is nothing that I'm just, like, I mean, there's some things that I'm, like, no, not that. But it's more just, like, it's it's a case-by-case basis for humans, for a type of activity, for a location, for a word. Like, we're constantly fluid in like our cravings and desires and what we want. Like the same way some days you want, like you just know that you want a fucking cheesesteak, right? And you will like, or I guess you're from Chicago. You want fucking pizza, right? You want that. (laughs) And then another day you're just like, I need a salad. And that's okay. You could be an omnivore. No one thinks omnivores are like worse than carnivores. Whatever. Right. That was a weird tangent. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it work. I, I am also Simone smoking, really so. wants to bring omnivore into the <laughs> Did dialogue. Did you say you're also smoking? Yeah. So I'm here for so this. Maybe this is making more sense. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the same level. But yeah, I like omnisexual. But I, bisexual is what people know. Did you watch Bohemian Rhapsody the movie? No. 
I was afraid. I'm always afraid to watch biopics of artists that I love. Mm. Understandable. And I know a lot of big fans were not happy with this, but um, a lot of my bisexual identifying friends were really upset with it because they feel like it was really um, like by bi- bi- bisexual erasure because um, he was someone, you know, historically um, and in the movie says, you know, I'm bisexual. And the girlfriend in the movie says, no, you're gay. Because he likes what? having I mean, because I he liked having either. sex with men. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a bummer. But so um I have a question about so speaking of labels and what we call ourselves. So you are a womanist, not a feminist, right? I feel like I use those terms interchangeably. If you say black feminist, you mean womanist, and womanist means you black mean feminist. Womanist. Although they have they have a divergent but parallel history together in that like womanism branched off as on as its own scholarship and its own thing parallel to black feminist literature and academic works and all of that so would i'm just trying to fit so but so only black women are womanists right no people well it depends on who you ask there are mm-hmm. three different iterations of womanism, not including proho womanism. And they were, uh, I think they were almost parallel, like the, the way they developed on their own. But Walker womanism is usually what black feminists will reference on Twitter anyway. And um, Walker womanism is black feminists and feminists of color. Okay. And that's reflected in the anthologies. It's it's women of color. I always find it tough to walk the line between like asking for help in navigating how to be more inclusive while mm-hmm. not putting the the burden or the onus on any sexual minority by being like, oh, tell me how to be better. Like I should do the research myself. Um, but I wonder, I wonder, Simone, like how how we can do better. Um, at being yeah. more inclusive. Well, yeah. Are you asking my thoughts or are you asking yeah, Supreme who, Bay's who, thoughts? Either, <laughs> whoever wants to share. Like I said, I think it's hard because I, I would love to hear Supreme Bay's thoughts, but I also am like aware that in asking, sometimes it feels like then white people mm-hmm. put the onus on sexual minorities to be like, tell me what to do. And that's well, not like only you're doing minorities, the, any yeah, like any minority, but like then you're doing it the work for me. Um, but I do want to exactly. know, like you know, is there? Um, I wonder how we can just continue to be more inclusive. I don't even know if the word I would use is inclusive. What would you use? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Because I'm not it's not because inclusive word. implies it's like, not active enough. We need to bring you into our. Like, come under our umbrella, right? But I think my understanding is, like, it's, like, no. Like, we don't need to, like, welcome anybody under our umbrella. Like, I think that I need to personally, like, think about, okay, why is this the umbrella that I am under? And, like, recognizing that, like, as a white woman, like, I... Yeah, it's not for me to, like, figure out how... To include people, I just need to figure out how to be the best ally, supporter, amplifier. And sometimes that means just, like, stepping the fuck back 
Mm-hmm. I'm I'm still definitely learning this. And so I am curious about like what your thought, not to be like, okay, so what do white women do? But like <laughs> at the same time, I guess that is what we're wondering. Like what is, what would you like? Mm-hmm. I feel like the way I think about this question in terms of like myself, I always ask myself this about um, the disability movement because people have said, well, you have a chronic illness. Why don't you speak out more on disability and I'm like you know like I talk about different things but I personally don't feel like I need to speak or be a loud voice in that movement unless it's just to support other voices which I do and learning on my own you know about accessibility and disability rights and the history and everything like that because even though I have a chronic illness you know I don't need to be centered in that movement. And I feel like, you know, it's kind of like a thing. It's more about bridging movements than, you know, inclusiveness. There was like, a really great quote that we, or that Simone found of yours that it makes me sort of think of that. And it was, um, solidarity is impossible without highlighting differences and rejecting the urge to homogenize, rejecting the urge to promote sameness as ideal. And so I, it kind of relates to what you were saying before, Simone, about quote-unquote inclusivity and bringing people under an umbrella, I feel like that doesn't include a, as much of an aspect of action or social justice as much as it should. And, and it's also just assuming that the umbrella that you're holding is the right one. Right. You know, or maybe assuming that we all even have to be under the same umbrella. We can just... Right, kind of exactly. That's the point. Like, we have our yeah. own umbrellas and talk to each other. <laughs> maybe some people want a hat. Yeah. Or an awning. <laughs> or a parasol. <laughs> but no, in all sincerity, though, I think that is true. Like, even just, like, rethi- like you, so much of what I've read of yours and, like, what you talk about is focused on, like, decentering like, the conversation from, like, whiteness and wealth. And I think that's huge because I think, I mean, my understanding from, like, what I'm trying to learn from your writings, being the, the scholar that I am in researching um, this <laughs> interview, was like thinking about the frameworks that I just like take as a given for like analyzing sex and feminism or womanism or like systems of oppression and how, yeah, the dominant culture really fucks shit up, fucks shit up by being dominant sometimes or a lot of the time or maybe all the time. Uh, Supreme Bay, how are you? how are you doing work now with the FOSTA-SESTA thing? I know before we were talking about safety and how it's impacted you, but how are you navigating this in the work that you're doing? I just quit full service until I could figure things out. And so mostly I'm going back to camming this year. Finally, I kept saying that for like a year, but I got harassed in docs last year, so I could not. Oh, Oh, no. And so I, um, I finally am probably going to go back this year, but with my partner, probably, um, like on a dual channel or whatever, but, um, most of my money to pay my rent and stuff is from Patreon now. Wow. I had to support her Patreon. (laughs) I had to do it. I had to get, you know, beef up my patreon and really like start putting a lot of content on there to get patrons and that's what i did all of last year because i got tired of being harassed about cash links 
I mean, that's so tough because I when you first said camming, I was like, oh yeah, something that's like safer. But then there are so many other issues that could come with that, like doxing. I actually don't know because we uh, we have a lot of you know friends who do podcast sexuality podcasts, um, and we're we're going to be launching our Patreon soon. Um, and how does it work with promoting? sex-related content on Patreon with the new FOSTA-SESTA mm-hmm. stuff? Well, I don't know about anybody else and what kind of content they have, but I don't put a whole lot of nudity on my Patreon. If I do, it's for patrons only. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to mark if it's adult content, though, and that's why I don't even bother really to put any nudes on Patreon. Like, unless but it's yours is on- adult only, I think. Um, not really. Um, I write about sex work politics. Oh, no, I don't think, I don't agree that it's adult only. I'm just saying, like, when I access it to look, it says, are you 18? Oh, really? Maybe I marked Mm -hmm. it. Or maybe they fucking did it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I could have sworn that I left it alone, though, because I don't have any, um, sexual content, really. Yeah. Like, I literally just talk about politics and music and books to read and pro-womanism. That's what I talk about. But I do think it's interesting. Like, let's say they marked it, that people think that sex work politics is only for 18 plus people. That's weird. Yeah, literally, I just clicked to go to your Patreon. It says you must be 18 plus to view this content. Supreme Bay is creating content that you make. That makes me so mad. Unless you did it yourself. But uh, do you speak openly with, with your kid about sex work? I mean, he's around. I don't censor myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, he's he's always around here. I don't know. He hasn't really asked me anything about what I do because, like, naturally, he doesn't see what I do. Mm-hmm. So... And all of his stuff is like, has parental controls on it. So he's not going to see what I do for a long time unless he gets some friends and he goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the odds? I can barely find the same porn that I watched last night today. So (laughs) which is so frustrating when you find a good one. You're like, I got to remember this one. And then you can't fucking find it again. (laughs) Right. So like, what are the odds that he's going to find my page unless somebody deliberately gives it to him? In which case I'm going to be like, yeah, that's. That's how I feed you. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, I had another question about a quotation you used in um, another one of your, the, the other, the, sorry, the recent article about like terminology, um, about like, why is it that the only individuals classified as sex workers are those whose labor is connected to sexual pleasure? And I was just curious, like your answer, like what you think about that. Sex worker, the term was coined to describe people involved in erotic labor. And it's a political term. And it was developed and coined, I think, for a specific reason. So the fact that, you know, we're fighting for justice and rights and all of these things. And now suddenly people have an interest and they're like, well, you know, like sexual academics who write about sexuality should be included and this person should be included. And it just almost mm-hmm. feels like a decentering because mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, like only because, like I said, you know, there's people who there's sex worker and then there's sex worker the way the academics use it. 
Um, and I think academics and people who, you know, are not really, don't really know a lot about our politics, they use the term as interchangeable as prostitute or escort. Mm -hmm. So it always denotes full service work. When in reality, the term evolved and was phrased the way that it was so that it could connect other sex workers and build a a movement. It's a political term. And to make sure that it was differentiated from non-consensual sex trafficking. Well, yes, (laughs) I think so, but I have my own feelings about that. Oh, say more. Yes. No, I know you do. It's, it's, I think it makes, anyway. I just don't like the binary. And I've talked about this on Twitter. I don't like the sex trafficking, sex work binary. There are people Mm -hmm. who have been trafficked into sex work. I'm Melissa Gira Grant has been talking about this a lot on her Twitter as well. Um, and I, and I, you know, have heard that language used and borrowed some from her. Um, but you know, people, if we keep building that binary of sex trafficking, sex work, we ignore the fact that trafficking is not inherent to the sex industry, the sex trade or whatever you want to call it. Trafficking happens in various different industries and yet sex the sex trade is the only industry that's really being targeted for that shit, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe the garment industry, but like mm-hmm. that's kind of died down a little yeah, people bit. People kind of stopped caring and they're still buying other fast yeah, food. Yeah. And like the garment industry is definitely guilty of trafficking. Yeah. yeah. And so like, you know, like when we talk about labor and exploitation and all of these things, you can't really have that binary of like, you can't really just be like, you know, we're differentiated from those people who are sex trafficked or from sex trafficking because there are people who are trafficked into the sex industry. There are people who are trafficked into the garment industry and various other service industries here in the United States and South America, you know, like and all over the place. So that's not something that's unique to the sex industry. And it's weird. No, I but feel I, like yeah, it's like the sex the sex industry has to defend itself for for a lot yeah. of things, and yeah, I feel like it's, like how they how you described it that is how they meant it, the term sex work to differentiate, but like that's not how I mean it. With the choice coercion dichotomy, it's like you know I always talk about getting away from that, recognizing that there are people who have experienced both or are who are in between, and yes. All of that. Or who maybe started one way but have ended up the other way. And right. there's some gray area. Yeah. In either direction. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're such a wealth of knowledge. You're <laughs> like a so fucking much. encyclopedia. I know. I feel fuck? like we just have like a list of questions where we're like, tell us about this. Tell us about this. Like, <laughs> and then you us. just have your citations like in your head. I know. I can't get over it. <laughs> well, I just, um, I actually just live in a house full of books. I have like three or 400 books in this motherfucker. Um, it might be more if I count like my comics, but I'm not going to. So <laughs> I have a lot of books and all, I always have these books sitting around me because I'm writing a book. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome. And just I, so I want make, to make sure all of our listeners can like find you and support you. And I know on Twitter, you're at Thought Scholar, T-H-O-T Scholar. And I'm just curious how you came up with the name because it's brilliant. I just say words sometimes and I was tweeting Good words and I said, I am a thought scholar 
and and my friend was like that should be your new handle because nobody's gonna know how to spell supreme bay (laughs) (laughs) and i was like whatever bitch and then i changed my handle (laughs) it's it's so good though it's like fucking evocative i love it i'm grateful that yeah. that is your handle. It's definitely memorable because um, people who hate me surely never forget my name. <laughs> They're always for sure. They they like blot out my name like I'm a celebrity. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> well, girl, you well, are. <laughs> you are a celebrity. You're definitely like a very like I said, prolific writer, and like your voice is singular, and what you're saying is important. And yeah, I can't I wait to read your book. People are paying attention. Yeah, it was like so cool. I went to a panel that Supreme Bay was on at Yale Law School and there was like, there were women in the audience that like had her book and were like shaking it and like freaking out. It was pretty cool to witness. That was such a great panel. That shit was strange. It was strange or that someone had your book? Yeah, that someone had my book. It was... And she was like sitting in the front row. It was like, I wrote that. Oh. (laughs) so cool. (laughs) Did it feel good though? It did. It was just weird. Like it was surreal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's going to happen to you much more um, as you continue being fucking awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. So just a reminder to our listeners, you can find Supreme Bay on Twitter at Thought Scholar and your Patreon is? It's patreon.com slash Thought Scholar. Also Thought Scholar. And if you want to, keep up with us and what we're doing you can follow us on twitter at sluts and scholar oh at sluts scholars and on instagram at sluts and scholars and of course you can email us at sluts and scholars at gmail.com so many scholars in our handles today yeah thank you